0: lecture three of lectures on painting by edward armitage this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture three on the painters of the eighteenth century before proceeding to speak of the painters of the eighteenth century it would not be out of place to give a general sketch of the state of the art toward the close of the seventeenth i trust that in my last lecture i made it clear to you that after rubens and van dyck no painter of any talent appeared to support the fame of the flemish school but that in the northern provinces of flanders and in holland a whole constellation of imitative painters arose who for truthful colour and exquisite skill have rarely been equalled and never surpassed this brilliant outburst of talent did not however last very long indeed it may be said with truth that all the best dutch pictures were painted within the space of sixty years from about sixteen twenty to sixteen eighty we then perceive a gradual decline of the school not such a rapid decay as overtook the antwerp and brussels academies but a perceptible inferiority both in the colour and the handling the former became more opaque and heavy and less true whilst the latter lost a good deal of its admirable dexterity i know of no dutch paintings of first-rate excellence unless it be some of van hoesen's flower-pieces which were executed in the eighteenth century if we turn to italy we find the art of painting which had been partially arrested in its downward course by the eclectic and naturalistic schools now getting lower and lower devoid alike of original conception or good execution the italian painters of this time were little better than coarse decorators when i say that luca giordano towers like a giant over his contemporaries it will be easily understood what a pygmy race they must have been in france poussin le sieur and claude Gillet all died in the latter half of the seventeenth century leaving no worthy successors behind them germany owing perhaps to her long civil wars and political troubles had produced no great artist since Holbein, and the english school was as yet non-existent so we may easily comprehend the very low level to which art sank toward the beginning of the eighteenth century when i say that the english school was non-existent in the seventeenth century i do not mean that there were no painters in england the Stuart princes were generally liberal patrons of art, but all the best painters patronized by them were foreigners. Van Dyck, Sir Peter Lely, and even Sir G. Canneller were all foreigners, and the country was inundated with third-rate Flemish and Italian painters. Of the latter, Vario is a good typical example.' charles the second employed him to cover the ceilings and walls of his palaces with tasteless sprawling allegories and we learn from walpole that the sums paid by the king or rather by the unfortunate country for these wretched parodies of italian decorative painting were very considerable i think that of late years sir peter lely has had scant justice done to his talent a contemporary of van dyck his portraits have many points of resemblance with those of that master his inferiority is chiefly noticeable in the hands dresses and accessories of his portraits but his female heads are often very beautiful and are singularly characteristic of the period sir godfrey kneller although he lived well into the eighteenth century must be looked upon as a seventeenth-century painter all his best work having been done when he was comparatively young he is another of those predecessors of reynolds whom it has been the fashion to vilify and decry i have seen portraits by kneller which were infinitely better than much of the highly praised portraiture of the last century but unfortunately this clever though intensely vain artist regarded painting more as a lucrative trade than as a liberal profession no one can wish that kneller had devoted his talents to the stupid allegorical style then in fashion instead of sticking to portraits but what may be wished is that he had been more conscientious and less greedy for money in the particular branch of art to which he devoted himself in speaking of court patronage, I noticed that the painters encouraged by the Stuarts were all foreigners. but this does not seem to have been done from systematic neglect of native talent, but simply because no painters worthy of the name were born in England. The only real Englishman of the century who rose above mediocrity was William Dobson, and he had no reason to complain of want of royal patronage for King Charles appointed him at a very early age to be court painter on the death of Van dyke and used to call him the english tintoretto from what i have seen of dobson's i don't think i should have compared him to tintoretto nevertheless i consider him as a genuine artist and had he not died at the age of thirty-six he would probably have achieved much greater fame i ought not to omit mentioning john riley whose work was often taken for walpole described him as having been humble and modest and adds that with a quarter of kneller's vanity he might have persuaded the world that he was as great a master i think the anecdote told of him greatly in his favour that charles the second after sitting to him exclaimed on seeing the picture is this like me then odds fish i am an ugly fellow in such an age of flattery and falsehood it is quite refreshing to meet with an honest painter to give you an idea of the deplorable state of the art of painting toward the beginning of the eighteenth century i will quote from horace walpole who although by no means a good art critic was a man of great taste and shrewdness speaking of the accession of the house of hanover he says we are now arrived at the period in which the arts were sunk to the lowest ebb in britain From the stiffness introduced by Holbein and the Flemish masters we were fallen into a loose and, if I may use the word, dissolute kind of painting. Sir Godfrey Neller still lived, but only in name, which he prostituted by suffering the most wretched daubings of hired substitutes to pass for his works, while at most he gave himself the trouble of painting the face of the person who sat to him.' his successors thought they had caught his free manner when they neglected drawing and finishing walpole goes on to deplore the frightful fashions of the period and remarks that Dahl, Dargar, richardson Gervase, and others rebuffed by such barbarous forms and not possessing genius enough to deviate from what they saw clothed all their personages with a loose drapery and airy mantles which not only were not but could not be the dress of any age or nation all these casual and loose wrappings were imitated from nothing they seldom have any folds or chiaroscuro drawing and color being equally forgotten There are hundreds of these portraits still in existence, but they are generally relegated to attics and dark corridors of old country seats, and no one ever thinks of looking at them. The owner does not like to make a bonfire of the effigies of his ancestors, but he stows them away where they will not be seen. Setting aside all questions of art, these insipid productions are valueless as likenesses, we feel that not only the dresses but the faces themselves could not be of any age or nation walpole like most men of his time cared but little about historical or decorative painting and his remarks on the decadence of art relate solely to portraiture but there is no doubt that figure painting had deteriorated just as much george i was totally devoid of taste and the second george as is well known hated poetry and painting the only employers of artists i cannot call them patrons were country gentlemen and a few noblemen who wanted their portraits painted the wonder to me is not that the portraits of richardson and Gervase were so bad but that they were not worse as the century proceeded portrait painting in england did not improve We find that, between 1730 and 1750, Thomas Hudson was at the head of the profession, and no words can express better than this fact how deep the art had sunk. The only representative of large historical painting at the beginning of the century was Sir James Thornhill. I do not feel for this artist the same antipathy that I do for his predecessors, Vario and Laguerre indeed i think that had sir james lived at any other period he would have become a really great artist he was a very fair draughtsman and understood the art of grouping with taste and dignity but he had not the genius necessary to break away altogether from the ignoble style of his day it would be a profitless task to enumerate the crowd of insipid foreign painters who found a market for their work in england during the first half of the eighteenth century i prefer passing on at once to hogarth who stands up like a giant amongst his dwarfish contemporaries he at any rate possessed original genius and his manual skill though inferior to that of the best dutchman was by no means contemptible his portraits are amongst the best and most characteristic of the century and i can find nothing in his attempts at a higher kind of art as illustrated by his sigismunda in the national gallery to justify either the savage onslaught of walpole or the contemptuous pity of reynolds on the contrary it appears to me that this much-abused picture is a very respectable performance and i fail to see any presumption in a skilful and accomplished artist like hogarth seeking to escape from the loathsome task of always painting scenes of vice misery or folly sir joshua ought to have recollected his own death of dido and other attempts in what he calls the great historical style before taxing hogarth with imprudence and presumption as in these lectures i have often ventured to criticise and as some may think to speak disrespectfully of our first president and his discourses i should like to state that though i do not admire his pictures as universally as some do i consider him to have been a thorough artist by which i mean that he was saturated with love for his profession to him a painting instead of being a task was the greatest pleasure in life and in pursuit of this pleasure he was indefatigable we owe him a deep debt of gratitude as the great regenerator of art in this country the great french art reformer david went back to the antique and to nature who is older still and this seems to me the more logical method but there is no doubt that practically considering sir joshua's own idiosyncrasies and the state in which he found english portraiture an intelligent study of the old masters was the best rope for hauling british art off the mud-bank on which she had so long been stranded the name of reynolds as a portrait painter is almost as much respected abroad as it is here most of his work is faded and otherwise much deteriorated but fortunately the excellent engravings of his portraits will to all ages preserve his fame as a man of great power taste and refinement i confess myself quite unable to appreciate gainsborough's pictures as they are at present appreciated i don't mean to say that i undervalue all his work I have seen heads by him which I admired exceedingly, but I must protest against the blind fetishism which would compel us to accept as good work any weak, trashy picture which bears his name. I have read laudatory notices both of him and Romney which would tempt one to say with Baraccio, see what a deformed thief this fashion is.' i would recommend young artists to bear in mind a pithy old saying to the effect that one man may steal a horse while another may not look over the hedge and to beware of treating landscape or portraiture either in the gainsborough style should they be misled into anything of the kind they will find to their cost that the loose flimsy manner which is greatly admired in the fashionable painter of the last century will not be tolerated for one instant in a modern picture amongst the early members of this academy coates dance and ramsay were all portrait painters who have in my opinion fully as good a right to celebrity as gainsborough but their merits are ignored whilst inferior works attributed to gainsborough fetch thousands of pounds amongst the figure-painters of the eighteenth-century academicians i consider copley to have been far the best when i compare his honest manly work with that of his contemporaries angelica Kaufman and west i am always struck by its immeasurable superiority indeed considering that portraiture had been the only branch of the art cultivated in england since the days of holbein and bearing in mind how figure drawing had been neglected i look upon copley's pictures with something like admiration i cannot feel the same respect for barry's paintings at the adelphi although the effort evinced in these paintings is worthy of all praise it was a much-needed protest against the all-absorbing fashion portraiture of the day but unfortunately the artist's drawing was neither correct nor refined enough for this kind of work and i fear it must be allowed that the execution of these heroic subjects is both weak and pretentious in my opinion there are but two english figure-painters of the eighteenth century whose merit would be acknowledged by an intelligent foreign critic by one in short who was ignorant of the market value of pictures and whose judgment was therefore wholly unbiased these two painters would be Hogarth and Copley. We will now see what sort of artist this century of puff and powder produced in France. In France, the seventeenth century had been a very remarkable period for art, for it was then that Poussin, Lesieur, Claude Gelay, and Le Brun all lived and died. Thus, while in England all historical and landscape painting was a complete blank, France produced some of the greatest artists that have ever lived they at least three of them poussin Lesueur, and claude were great in the largest sense of the word classic religious and landscape painting must always satiris paribus take precedence of homely genre and prosaic portraiture invention is a higher quality than power of imitation particularly when as in the case of these three painters the inventive power flowed without effort and was exercised with rare taste and judgment with these three great artists i coupled lebrun not because i consider him by any means their equal but because he was the founder of a good deal of the art which found favour in france during the eighteenth century it is with this century that we have to deal so without further preamble i will begin with jean Juvenet. This artist, but little known out of France, narrowly escaped becoming a great painter. His early pictures have a good deal of Poussin's classical manner about them. Lebrun thought so highly of the young artist that he employed him as an assistant in the large battle-pieces he was executing for Louis Fourteenth at Versailles. Here he no doubt acquired a good deal of Lebrun's vigor and facility, but lost the pure taste and classical feeling he had derived from Poussin he was a very prolific painter and all his works are either life-size or larger than life they are remarkably well drawn and vigorously coloured but they lack the one quality which makes Lesueur's work so attractive viz simplicity and reverential feeling it is by no means necessary that the painter of religious subjects should be an aesthetic nor even what is commonly called a religious man but it is necessary that he should import into his work some of the spirit of christianity just as it is necessary for the painter of pagan heroes and nymphs to imbue himself with the spirit of classical art until it becomes a second nature to him In Juvenet's numerous pictures of New Testament subjects, the action is too violent, and the painter has evidently thought more about displaying his own skill than doing justice to his subject. In Rubens' biblical pictures, we often find the same kind of vulgar bustle and common types, but everything is pardoned to Rubens on account of his brilliant color." Juvenet's color, though fairly good, was not of that transcendent quality which would condone his very unbiblical style of composition. With all his faults, Juvenet is rather a favorite of mine. I like his thoroughly masculine style of work, and I admire his indomitable pluck and industry. It is related of him that some ten years before his death he became afflicted with paralysis which completely crippled his right arm he then took to painting with his left and on recovering partially the use of his right fingers he used to hold his brush in his right hand and guide it with his left it is said that the work thus done is hardly inferior to what he produced before his paralysis contrast this devotion and love for his art with the tradesmanlike indifference of the english face-painters of the nellers the gervases and the richardsons and others who as soon as they had acquired wealth shirked work as much as possible antoine watteau is another artist of great power and originality who made a very marked impression on the continental schools of the eighteenth century although he died at the early age of thirty-seven he became quite a chef Lancre was the best of his imitators, but dexterous and clever as Lancre's pictures are, they hardly equal the best of Watteau's. We have often read and heard about the humble beginnings of artists who subsequently became famous, but the poverty and squalor of Watteau's student life have, I should think, never been rivaled. He left his native town of Valenciennes for Paris without money and with hardly a rag to cover him. With difficulty, he obtained work at a kind of sign-painters, whose principal business was in the religious votive picture-line. A number of young students were employed by this dealer, and quantity was more insisted on than quality. Watteau got three francs a week, and, as he was an excellent workman, he had a bowl of soup given him every day. He did not stay very long with this man, but for many years his poverty compelled him to work for others. During all this time he never ceased taking every opportunity of sketching from nature, and thus laid the foundation of his subsequent extraordinary facility. Ultimately he was fortunate enough to meet with the best kind of patron, not a pompous bigwig who condescended to sit for his portrait, but a gentleman who possessed a first-class collection of drawings by the old masters, and who allowed Watteau to sketch and copy to his heart's content this completed our artist's education he formed his style of colour on p Veronese and rubens but his elegant and spirituelle drawing and the crisp dexterity of his touch were all his own it may surprise some to hear that the painter of the frivolous masquerading scenes and of the foppish humours of his day was of a mild and rather melancholy disposition longing for the quiet of a country life and the unsophisticated joys of a poultry-yard and cabbage-garden watteau's fame increased after his death when it was found that not one of his numerous imitators could equal him this fame was completely swept away by the great classical wave which deluged France toward the close of the century. This wave, in its turn, receded, and Watteau is now again at high-water mark. The able French critic M. Viau asks, apropos of this flux and reflux of popular estimation, pourquoi ne pas rendre justice en tout temps, quel que soit le genre? Quelle que soit la forme a l'originalité a la force au seulement en un mot au vrai génie the answer is who is to determine what a vrai génie is it is just because the art world in the time of david could see no genius in watteau that they treated his work with the most ignominious contempt and it is because the present french school is intensely anti-classical that the paintings of the first empire are looked upon with loathing i am afraid that fashion rules public opinion in art as much as she does in dress There are very few artists, and still fewer critics, who can, like M. M. V. O., give an unprejudiced opinion about two such dissimilar painters as Watteau and David. They, like politicians, take either one side or the other. They are swayed by party, and we all know what that means. We all know the respectful homage paid by liberals to conservatives, uh, and uh, vice versa." i now come to the painters who are most typical of the eighteenth century these were the brothers Van vanloo and boucher i grouped them together as their style and the subjects they treated were so similar that for my purpose these three or four painters may be treated as one gifted with a marvellous facility of brush with great industry and with no scruples about purity of style these facile decorative painters got through an incredible amount of work boucher especially fairly glutted the market with pictures and drawings of every conceivable subject and as although a man of pleasure he made it a rule to work ten hours a day it may be understood that a good deal of this work was mechanical and commonplace the color of all the pictures of this school is as fictitious as the drawing but for all that it is not disagreeable from a decorative point of view and none but very clever men could have ignored nature with so little impunity when i was a student in paris the traditions of the david school had not died out and to call an artist a boucher or a vanloo was the ne plus ultra of insult old david himself however seems to have been more just to boucher for when one of his fanatical classical followers was railing against that master i can tell you says david that it is not given to everyone to be a boucher no doubt he was right it was not given to every one to produce over ten thousand works of art none of which can be said to be much below mediocrity and some greatly above it boucher and even the much-abused Van vanloo were infinitely better painters in every respect than any artist italy could produce at this period they at any rate had a style of their own which is more than can be said for maratti pomponi and other miserable followers of the once great italian school the style was neither noble nor pure but it was all the better suited for the decoration of louis the fifteenth apartments another figure-painter contemporary with boucher and the van loos was greutz this artist is a very striking illustration of the power of fashion over the popularity of a painter it is not many years ago since a good specimen of greutz was worth more than a fine rembrandt or van der helst this strange greutz mania lasted a few years and then happily died gradually away there is a certain prettiness about his female heads and i have seen portraits by him which were remarkably good but his pictures such as the malédiction paternelle and the fils puni are a curious mixture of nambypamblyism and melodrama there were two popular engravings of these pictures which in louis philippe's time were great favourites with the lower bourgeoisie and it was curious to note how universally they were disliked by all artists and how universally admired by all retired grocers pork-butchers and shopkeepers in general his chef-d'oeuvre is supposed to be the croche-casse in the louvre and during the greutz epidemic hundreds of copies were made of this to me rather offensive picture i shall reserve david and his school for my next lecture but before finishing what i have to say about the french artists of the eighteenth century i wish to mention the portrait painter rigeot and one or two landscape painters portrait painting in france was never debased to a trade as it was in england many of the historical painters i have mentioned executed portraits and very fine ones too but the best portraitist of the century was hyacinthe his full length of louis the fourteenth is really a grand work his biographer informs us that he worked with his brush for sixty-two years and averaged thirty portraits a year during the whole of that period in addition to this he made a point of retouching the numerous copies and replicas which were made of his royal portraits he painted five kings and innumerable princes and scions of royal blood probably no artist ever lived who painted so many great personages or who gave such a general satisfaction no man however could possibly get through such a colossal amount of work without the quality suffering and there is in rigeau's portraits of minor personages a monotony and mechanical sameness which is very tiresome although i never yet saw a portrait by rigeau which was ill-drawn or badly posed it appears that this excellent artist distinguished himself in early life by his careful academical studies studies which he continued long after he became well known as a portrait painter and the good results of this training are evident from the masterly treatment of the hands and all the accessories in his portraits it is strange that sir joshua reynolds who was liberal enough at any rate toward artists who were no longer living should never have mentioned the portraits of rigaud Another excellent French painter of the eighteenth century was Joseph Vernet, the father of Karl and grandfather of Horace Vernet. His views of the seaports of France are evidence of his honest style of work and indefatigable industry. An able French critic, speaking of these and other numerous sea pieces by Vernet, remarks that although he may not have the delicacy of touch possessed by Van de Velde, nor the glowing color of Claude yet no landscape painter ever was more thorough and uniformly good than vernet his figures are always admirably arranged and painted with great skill and his way of viewing nature was simple unaffected and broad unfortunately his pictures have become very dark and brown and the hanging of all the seaport views together in one gallery is not a happy arrangement One's first impression on entering the room is that they are a collection of old maps, and it is only after close and patient examination that their good qualities become apparent. Hubert Robert was another of the conscientious and indefatigable workers of the eighteenth century, whose pictures are hardly known at all in England. His fort was the delineation of old Roman buildings, and the Louvre possesses several examples of his careful, honest work on account of his great reputation as an architect he was much employed by louis the fifteenth at versailles in designing the garden terraces and park buildings and it was probably on this account that he was looked upon as a royalist and thrown into prison at the time of the great revolution there he remained for ten months employing his time in sketching and painting his fellow prisoners Although he expected every day to be carted off to the guillotine, the pictures and portraits which he executed at this terrible time show no sign of careless haste or nervous indecision. They are extremely valuable as being true records of the scenes which took place in the prisons, but they are seldom seen in public galleries, as they were given by the painter to his companions in misfortune, and are treasured as heirlooms by their descendants when i mention that our painter was sixty years old at the time i think it will be conceded that he was made of the right stuff having exhausted what i can afford time to say about the french schools of the eighteenth century i would gladly pick out a few italian painters of merit of that period but i find it utterly impossible to do so they were a race of bad copyists without a spark of originality or independence of feeling They had traditional receipts for covering large wall spaces with figures in the Pietro di Cortona and Carlo Maratti style, and as the century wore on, these pasticcios became more and more insipid and commonplace. It is better by far to have a style of one's own, though it be frivolous like Watteau's or artificial like Boucher's, than to go on manufacturing pictures by routine." the only exception i know of to the universal decrepitude of the italian eighteenth-century painters is canaletti he may not have been a great genius but at any rate he was not an imitator of others and his canal views of venice are a great deal more truthful than any i have ever seen i am aware that his way of painting a ripple on the water was too mechanical but his buildings are admirable and whenever i go to venice i am always more reminded of canaletti's pictures than of turner's i am not expressing the heretical opinion that canaletti was a greater artist than turner i am merely stating as a matter of fact that canaletti's venice is much more like the real place than turner's and it appears to me that an architectural painter should of all painters adhere strictly to local truth i cannot find amongst the german painters of the eighteenth century one single artist of first-rate excellence all the national talent seems to have found expression in the sister art of music we find handel haydn mozart beethoven and a host of other musical giants but not one man of exceptional stature amongst the painters raphael mengs was undoubtedly the best kugler tells us that from his twelfth year he was set to draw from the finest antiques and from the masterpieces of m angelo and raphael he afterwards studied colour from titian chiaroscuro from carleggio and so on in short he had a most thorough and systematic art education he was a painstaking and intelligent man and yet though crammed with knowledge he failed to leave a great name the truth appears to be that he lacked originality and self-dependence his pictures therefore though almost faultless in composition and drawing are somewhat cold and unsatisfactory then there's Dietrich, whose peculiar talent lay in the imitation of other masters. Rembrandt, Ostad, and many other Dutch masters were most closely imitated by this artist. Denner, the most minute finisher that ever lived, and Siebold, the portrait painter, who had a smooth, highly polished manner of painting, not unlike Denner's, pretty well exhaust the list of popular artists in Germany.' in the netherlands as i have already stated the race of a charming genre and landscape painters died out with the seventeenth century but van oysen and his followers Repel and van Os, carried the art of flower and fruit paintings to a point which it never reached before Many of the Italian painters of this century were very fond of introducing festoons of flowers in their pictures, and Boucher was pretty liberal, too, of pompadour roses, but these floral accessories were treated in a decorative fashion, and could not be compared to Van Huysum's exquisitely finished and richly-coloured flower-pieces. To summarize what I have said about eighteenth-century painting, we find in England a very low level of dull portraiture until Reynolds revolutionized the art, historical painting altogether absent, incident painting with only one good representative, Hogarth, and landscape painting also with only one, Richard Wilson, unless we count Crome, Cotman, and Constable as belonging to this century it will however be observed that during the latter half of the century art was in a continued state of progress the portraits which satisfied the public of the early georges were no longer tolerated landscape art was seriously studied and even what is called historical painting was feebly struggling into life in france on the contrary we find the art barometer falling during the century until the fall was rudely arrested by david her painters were incomparably superior to ours in the early part of the century but the all-pervading influence of the van loos and bouchers demoralized fatally the whole school and prepared the way for the great classical revival art was in a woeful plight in italy hardly any better in germany and dead or not yet born in other countries so that the eighteenth century or at least the greater part of it may be described in meteorological language as a widespread depression this depression has however long passed away and it rests with the coming generation of painters to take care that it should not occur again we cannot control the weather when a telegram is received from new york announcing a disturbance which will develop energy meaning in plain english that we must look out for squalls we cannot avert the coming storm but when we are threatened from paris vienna or rome with an epidemic of false or meretricious art we can resist the temptation of following like the sheep of panurge any cracked bellwether who may happen to be in fashion let every young artist work hard and conscientiously and when he has thoroughly learned the technical part of his profession and stored his mind with knowledge likely to be useful to him let him determine to carry out his own ideas regardless whether they happen to coincide with the prevailing craze of the day and i will venture to prophesy that no such a collapse of art as afflicted the first half of the eighteenth century will ever occur again End of lecture three.